Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight, the Adam Clark Connection. This podcast is part two of the podcast that I did recently called Borrowed Robes. In that podcast, I went over the paper recently published in the book Producing Ancient Scripture, the paper that was authored by Haley Wilson Lamont and Professor Thomas Wayman of BYU. In that paper, they set forth 17 different examples of how it is that Joseph Smith, in producing his Joseph Smith translation, relied heavily upon a famous and learned Bible commentary of his day called the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. The reason this is part two is because this paper does more than just list the evidence for the 17 different examples of dependence of the Joseph Smith translation on the Adam Clark Bible commentary. It goes on to provide an apologetic of sorts as to how it is that now that they've proved Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary for his inspiration for his translation, why that should not, repeat not, be an impediment to the faith of Latter-day Saints. Instead, they simply have to reconceive their idea of what it was Joseph Smith meant by the word translation. In other words, in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith said he was doing this translation by inspiration of God, and he called it a translation over and over again, that the use of the word translation must now perforce be expanded to encompass the idea of Joseph Smith consulting learned Bible commentaries in the process. As it states in the paper, and this is on page 279 of the book Producing Ancient Scripture, the evidence presented in this chapter suggests that a major reconsideration of Joseph Smith's understanding of translation is in order. Well, it's not just in order, it's actually mandated by this discovery. It is required. And then on page 282, they conclude with these ideas. These trends in Smith's translation are discernible and should now be broadened to include Smith's academic interest and reliance upon contemporaneous scholarly sources that were sensitive to traditional faith, as was Clark's commentary. So as I say, they are broadening the definition of translation to include consulting commentaries and relying upon them and borrowing ideas in multiple instances, hundreds according to their claims in this paper, for Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. The paper then, not surprisingly, quotes from the Revelation talking about it's necessary to study it out in your mind prior to receiving Revelation, and then applies this to Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, suggesting that part of studying it out in his mind was becoming familiar and acquainted with learned commentaries of his day, and then incorporating some of that material, in fact, lots of that material, into his translation of the Bible. To me, I see this as a rewriting of history. It's certainly a rewriting of the history that I learned as a member of the church from 1979 up to the present. And that is that as far as the Joseph Smith translation was concerned, it was received by revelation from God. And in fact, it was done in order to supply and replace and restore those parts of the Bible that the Book of Mormon tells us had become lost. So when this paper suggests that Joseph Smith viewed the process of inspiration as consulting learned Bible commentaries and then incorporating ideas from those commentaries into his translation, I have to push back on that idea. If Joseph Smith really believed that, and if he thought that was really part of his translation process and that was part of his receiving revelation from God, I would expect that we wouldn't be learning about it only now in 2000. 
and 20. In other words, if this is something that Joseph Smith legitimately believed that he was doing as part of his revelatory process, why was it apparently kept such a well-guarded secret? Why are there no accounts from Joseph Smith of the fact that he relied on the Adam Clark Bible commentary or other commentaries for that matter? Why do none of the witnesses to the Joseph Smith translation, such as his scribes, including and primarily Sidney Rigdon, why do they not mention that Joseph Smith was relying on the Adam Clark Bible commentary? One starts to get the feeling that this was supposed to be a secret and that Joseph Smith was looking at learned Bible commentaries from people who were eminently respected in their knowledge of the Bible, incorporating their insights into his translation of the Bible. And remember, these insights from Adam Clark are places where Adam Clark talks about earlier manuscripts. Adam Clark could read Greek. Adam Clark could read Hebrew. He could consult the earlier manuscripts. He had access to the earlier manuscripts. So what Adam Clark is saying is that the Bible today, the King James Version today, or in his day, had these passages wrong, and they should have been translated a different way. And it is those changes that Joseph Smith seems to have made overwhelmingly into his translation of the Bible. Why? Well, it would seem that it would be to give the impression that he is restoring the original meaning of the manuscript, courtesy of the efforts of Adam Clark. But of course, he doesn't mention he's relying on Adam Clark. He wants it to look like he's restoring these ancient correct readings from the Bible by revelation from God. So once again, I have to push back and say, I don't think that's what Joseph Smith was doing. I don't think he was legitimately conceiving that his translation and his inspiration relied on learned treatises, because if he really thought that, why wouldn't he have said that at the time? And why would nobody else mention that he was relying on these treatises? Why is it that it takes 190 years for Haley Wilson Lamont and Professor Thomas Wayman of BYU to do the research necessary to discover this fact? Trying to be as objective as I possibly can, I think it looks more like Joseph Smith is engaged in a fraud than it looks like Joseph Smith actually believed that consulting learned commentaries was a legitimate part of his inspiration and translation process. Now, what this paper deals with is the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. When we're talking about the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, we all know that this is a translation. He insists on calling it a translation. In fact, in one of the footnotes to this paper, it's actually footnote number 66. Let me put on my reading glasses here. It's in small print. They're quoting from an author, Kathleen Flake. She talks about the fact that Smith stubbornly persisted in using the word translation to describe the process by which he created his texts. So it is Joseph Smith who continues to call it a translation. But once again, we understand this is a different kind of translation project of Joseph Smith than any of his other translation projects. For instance, with the Book of Mormon, we understand that Joseph Smith presented as actually translating into English characters that were written on gold plates. Whether he was actually looking at those gold plates at the time, which seems unlikely now, or whether those characters were manifested in the glow from the seer stone that Joseph Smith could see and then see the translation underneath the character while he had his face in the hat. Regardless of how you look at it, Joseph Smith is presenting as translating actual characters in his Book of Mormon translation project. Similarly, the Book of Abraham. Joseph Smith is also presenting as translating characters that were found on Egyptian papyrus. 
into the text of the book of Abraham. That's much more of a customary standard idea of translation that we are more used to. It would seem that the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, even though he stubbornly persists in calling it a translation, is of a different character. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly true, and I'll get to that later. But on its face, at least, Joseph Smith is not going to the Bible and then translating from a different language into an English text. Instead, this is much more of an inspirational type of activity or a revelatory type of activity. It is indeed probably why the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints calls it the inspired version of the Bible. It is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Utah branch, that calls it by the name the Joseph Smith Translation. So what I think is going on here is that even though it's a stretch to say that in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible that he thought it was okay to consult learned treatises and commentaries and incorporate those ideas into his translation, that's one thing because in the Joseph Smith translation, he's not actually purporting to translate from one language to another as he did with the Book of Mormon and with the Book of Abraham. So while it's a stretch to say that's okay for the Joseph Smith translation, it's not as big a stretch for Joseph Smith to do that with the JST as it would be if he did it with the Book of Mormon. Let me make this point clear because it's going to play into what we're going to talk about here in a minute. If Joseph Smith is doing his Bible translation, not translating from one document to another, maybe we can make more allowance for him consulting learned Bible commentaries like the Adam Clark Bible Commentary as part of that translation process. But if Joseph Smith is purporting to translate characters from an ancient record written on gold plates into the Book of Mormon, it would be, I think, more difficult perhaps even impossible for me at least to make allowance for Joseph Smith relying on Bible commentaries in the Book of Mormon translation process. How does that make sense that he's translating characters into English and yet would be relying on learned Bible commentaries at the same time? That's the part that would be even more difficult to explain or at least to make room for faith in Joseph Smith as a translator of the Book of Mormon as this paper seeks to make room for faith in Joseph Smith as a translator in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Okay, having said all of that, you probably know where I'm going. Where I'm going is this. There is evidence that Joseph Smith used the Adam Clark Bible commentary and other commentaries, not only in the Joseph Smith translation, but also in his translation of the Book of Mormon. Remember, the Book of Mormon was dictated and translated in 1829, and that's just one year before Joseph Smith begins his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which he begins in June of 1830 and finishes in July of 1833. So it's not like the Book of Mormon translation happens a long time before the Joseph Smith translation starts. In fact, it's only one year earlier. And now we get to something very interesting. This is one of the first footnotes in this paper by Haley Wilson Lamont and Thomas Wayment. In fact, it is footnote three. And here's what they say in the body of their text that has this footnote. Joseph Smith's use of this source, i.e. the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, Joseph Smith's use of this source in his translation efforts has only recently been suggested and only in two instances. That's where they have footnote three. And if you go down to footnote three, you will see it references Ronald V. Huggins' article titled Without a Cause and Ships of Tarshish, a Possible Contemporary Source 
for two unexplained readings from Joseph Smith. That was published in Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, in the spring of 2003. So that's actually 17 years ago. It's not what I would call only recently, but that's the way this paper characterizes it. Now, if you go and pull up that paper by Ronald Huggins, Without a Cause and Ships of Tarshish, you will see that what he does is this. And before I go into detail, I'm going to tell you basically what it does. It talks about two examples where Joseph Smith apparently relied on the Adam Clark Bible commentary for his translation, not of the JST of the Bible, but of the Book of Mormon. This is why this is so important. And it's interesting to me that what they do is they just put this in a footnote, but they don't actually talk about either of these two examples that are mentioned in this dialogue article from 2003. And I think there may be a reason they don't want to go into those examples, even though both of these examples apparently not only occur in the Book of Mormon, but also occur in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. In other words, these two examples would fit as examples of Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary in the Joseph Smith translation, and yet they are not mentioned in this paper, even though one of them is extremely strong. Both of them are strong, and both of them are at least as strong as the 17 examples they did give in their paper, but neither of these two examples appear in their paper dealing with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And I wonder, I wonder, could it be that one of the reasons that neither of these examples is given is that it not only shows Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary for his Joseph Smith translation, but it goes back onto sacred ground and potentially much more dangerous ground, showing Joseph Smith's reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary in his translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, let me pull up this 2003 dialogue article now so we can look at these two different examples. The first thing it does is it gives a quotation from the LDS newspaper, The Evening and Morning Star, published in July of 1833. And this quotation from this newspaper describes the purpose of the Joseph Smith translation, at least as it was conceived of by Joseph Smith and other members of the church at the time it was being produced. In fact, it was 1833, so that's as of the year it had been completed. In fact, this Evening and Morning Star comes from the July 1833 issue. And once again, this goes to show that this was conceived of, the Joseph Smith translation was conceived of as being a restoration of those truths that had been lost from the Bible as part of the great apostasy. Here's what it says from the Evening and Morning Star article with the lead-in from this article by Ronald Huggins. That same month, i.e. July of 1833, when the JST was finished, that same month, the official church newspaper, the Evening and Morning Star, published in Independence, Missouri, sought to prepare the way for the JST by explaining its significance under the headings, Errors of the Bible and the New Version. So those are the headings for this newspaper article. Here's what the article says is quoted here in this paper. As to the errors in the Bible, any man possessed of common understanding knows that both the Old and New Testaments are filled with errors, obscurities, italics, and contradictions, which must be the work of men. As the Church of Christ, which is what the name of the church was at the time, they had not yet got the memo from President Nelson, as the Church of Christ will soon have the scriptures in their original purity, that's talking about the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. As the Church of Christ will soon have the scriptures in their original purity, it may not be amiss for us to show a few of the gross errors, or as they might be termed, contradictions. So we can see that the JST was conceived of as restoring the Bible in its original 
purity. That's what this article from 1833 says. Then later in the same article, it says this, with the old copy full of errors, with Dickinson's and Webster's polite translation, with Campbell's improved, i.e. these different translations of the Bible, and many more from different persuasions, how will a person of common understanding know which is right without the gift of the Holy Ghost? The Bible must be purified. Oh, what a blessing that the Lord will bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost upon the meek and humble, whereby they can know of a surety his words from the words of men. So once again, this is a very important quote because I think it proves that really this Joseph Smith translation was not conceived of as a commentary that Joseph Smith was doing on the Bible. No, that's something that scholars today are trying to say about his commentary because more and more that's what it's beginning to look like. Let me back up here a second. Back when I joined the church, it was very much understood and I did a lot of research in this area about the Joseph Smith translation. It was understood that the Joseph Smith translation was a restoration of the original reading of the Bible. Errors had crept in over the years, contradictions had crept in, but the Joseph Smith translation is how the Bible read when it came off the press, or in other words, when the prophets of God who authored them wrote it down on the original manuscript. That's what the Joseph Smith translation is restoring. But what has happened over the years is that a systematic effort has been made by certain persons, including yours truly, to go back and connect Joseph Smith translations with early manuscripts. And frankly, that effort has been largely unsuccessful. There have been some exceptions to it, but largely it's been unsuccessful. And therefore, people familiar with the Joseph Smith translation and familiar with the ancient manuscripts who are faithful members of the church are forced to try and recast the Joseph Smith translation, not as a restoration of what the Bible originally said, but instead it's sort of Joseph Smith's attempt to make his own commentary on the Bible. See, it's not really a restoration. It's just his ideas and thoughts about the Bible, thereby accounting for the lack of manuscript evidence to support most of the Joseph Smith translations. As it goes on in this article by Huggins in the 2003 Dialogue article, whatever its admirable qualities talking about the JST, it cannot legitimately be argued that it is a restoration of the original uncorrupted text of scripture. But then it goes on to talk about two examples of changes in the JST, changes to the text of the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, that do appear to be rooted in ancient manuscripts. There are two places, however, where the JST makes a surprising break from its pattern of non-contact with the ancient evidence. Matthew 5.22 and Isaiah 2.16. Interestingly, both verses were incorporated into the Book of Mormon as parts of larger passages taken over from the Bible. The problem, however, as this article goes on to demonstrate at length, and I won't go into all the detail that this article goes into, I heartily recommend you go and read it for yourself. You can find it online. But the problem with both of these examples is that not only are they supported by ancient texts, they are also supported by commentaries, Bible commentaries, that were available to Joseph Smith. And they give different sources that Joseph Smith could have gone to for both of these changes to the Book of Mormon and then later to the JST, by the way, then later to the JST. But originally in the Book of Mormon, there are different sources that Joseph Smith could have gone to that had these changes already noted in them. Commentaries written by authors who were already aware of the fact that earlier texts showed a different reading than what occurs in the current KJV. And ultimately, at the end of the article, this author will suggest that the most likely candidate 
for that commentary which Joseph Smith consulted, although he could have consulted several, is probably the Adam Clark Bible commentary because that is the commentary that contains both of these changes within its pages. The first change has to do with Isaiah chapter 2 verse 16 and that has to do with the ships of Tarshish. And basically, let me just tell you what's going on here. In what would appear to be otherwise an inconsequential verse from Isaiah chapter 2 verse 16, the King James Version has two lines in it, and upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all pleasant pictures. That's it. That's the line. It's a parallelism, right, from Isaiah. He's famous for them. And upon all the ships of Tarshish, that's the first line, and upon all pleasant pictures. Now, the Septuagint version of Isaiah, by the way, the Septuagint, for those of you who may not know, is a different version of the Old Testament. It was originally written in about the third century BCE. And what it is, is a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament because the Greek empire had spread throughout the world. Greek was becoming the language of the people. Many Jews in the diaspora were growing up away from Jerusalem. They maybe didn't know Hebrew the way that earlier Jews had. They're growing up learning Greek and so it was thought to be a good idea and I think it was a really good idea to take the Hebrew Bible and translate it into Greek so it could be used by Greek speaking and Greek reading Jews. The Septuagint version of Isaiah 2.16 is a little bit different from the Hebrew version that we find preserved in the King James Version. Once again, the King James Version says, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, that's the line, Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures, that's the pleasant pictures line, there's two lines. The Septuagint Version of Isaiah reads, and upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all pleasant pictures. So instead of having upon all the ships of Tarshish, the Septuagint substitutes an apparently different line, which is and upon all the ships of the sea, but preserves the same second line as in the King James Version, and upon all pleasant pictures. Sorry this is a bit complicated, but it's really quite simple once you understand what's going on. The King James Version has the first line about Tarshish and the second line about pleasant pictures. The Septuagint has the first line, which is not about Tarshish, but it's about ships of the sea, and the second line, which is the same as the KJV, about pleasant pictures. Now, when this verse from Isaiah appears in the Book of Mormon, in 2 Nephi 12, 16, what it does is it incorporates all three different lines. It incorporates the two lines from the King James Version of Isaiah, but also includes the variant line about ships of the sea from the Septuagint. And this is how it reads in the Book of Mormon. And upon all the ships of the sea, see there's the one from the Septuagint, not in the KJV. And upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, that's the one from Isaiah in the KJV, and upon all pleasant pictures. And that's the one that is found both in the KJV and the Septuagint. So mainly the focus is upon that first line and upon all the ships of the sea. That's not found in the KJV. It is found in the Septuagint. Joseph Smith could not read Greek. How on earth did he know that the Septuagint had this variant in it about all the ships of the sea so that he could incorporate it into the Book of Mormon? And this has become an argument in favor of the ancientness and therefore the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. In fact, this is the only apologetic argument of which I am aware that actually found its way into a footnote into the 1981 edition of the Book of Mormon. Let me grab my scriptures here. This is 2 Nephi 12, 16. 
twelve sixteen, right, and here's where it says, and upon all the ships of the sea, number one, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, number two, and upon all pleasant pictures, it has a footnote. If you go down to the footnote, here's what the footnote says in the official version of the LDS Church. Footnote 16a. The Greek Septuagint, it says in parentheses, the Greek Septuagint has ships of the sea. The Hebrew has ships of Tarshish. The Book of Mormon, this is continuing with the footnote, the Book of Mormon has both, showing that the brass plates had lost neither phrase. So the idea being that obviously Nephi is quoting Isaiah, he must be quoting it from the brass plates that they took with them from Jerusalem, and therefore the brass plates upon which the copy of Isaiah was written had all three phrases. It had the one from the Septuagint, ships of the sea, and it had the one from the Hebrew in the King James Version, the ships of Tarshish. And the paper that I'm talking about from the dialogue article introduces it this way and quotes from Terrell Givens by the hand of Mormon, because here Terrell Givens presents this same kind of apologetic argument on behalf of the authenticity of the Book of Mormon based upon the inclusion of the ships of the sea line. Here's what Terrell Givens has to say. One variant reading of Isaiah deserved special notice. In Isaiah 2.16, the prophet writes, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. The Septuagint version of Isaiah reads, and upon all the ships of the sea, and upon all pleasant pictures. Nephi's version incorporates both, and here he quotes 2 Nephi 12.16, and upon all the ships of the sea, from the Septuagint, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. And then Terrell Givens writes this, unless Joseph had access to both versions, which seems unlikely, one reasonable implication of such variations is that the Book of Mormon version predates the other two, each of which dropped a different phrase over time. This paper dates this argument back further than Terrell Givens, back to Sidney B. Sperry's book, Our Book of Mormon, where he makes the same argument. And that book was published in 1947. So this argument about the ships of the sea and the ships of Tarshish goes back at least to 1947. And it has been repeated numerous times since then, including now in the footnote to the LDS version of the Bible. The 2003 Dialogue article continues. The fact that Sidney Sperry's argument continues to be repeated even after half a century does not mean it is a good argument. Indeed, the logic of Sperry's argument that there were only two places Joseph Smith could have gotten every ship of the sea, from divine revelation or from the Septuagint, and since he probably did not know the latter, he had to have gotten it from the former, is specious. If these really were the only two possible sources, there is still no basis for denying that someone who did have access to the Septuagint could have passed the information along to Joseph. However, and this is the point that this paper is driving toward, however, these were not the only two possible sources, as was made plain more than 20 years ago in Wesley P. Walter's book, The Use of the Old Testament in the Book of Mormon, that was published in 1981. And there, Wesley Walters writes the following, It should be noted that popular family Bibles and commentaries of the day pointed out the fact that the Septuagint here read, quote, the ships of the sea, unquote, so that such knowledge was available even to the layman of Joseph Smith's day. In fact, several commentaries of that period give the word of the Greek version as plural, the ships of the sea, whereas the Greek is really singular, as noted above. This could readily indicate that Joseph took his wording verbatim from 
the commentaries. There is therefore no need to postulate an original text that breaks up the poetic arrangement of the passage when Joseph could easily have obtained the information from the pool of knowledge available to him at that period. So that's the quote from Wesley Walters' book, The Use of the Old Testament in the Book of Mormon, published in 1981. And now this dialogue article goes ahead and gives several different possible commentaries and sources that Joseph Smith could have gotten this information from that the Greek Septuagint of this passage said the ships of the sea instead of the ships of Tarshish. And without going into the names of all these commentaries, let me just say that basically they come up with five different commentaries, five different Bible commentaries available to Joseph Smith where the Septuagint translation ships of the sea is recorded. The paper now moves on to the second example of a change in the Book of Mormon, which is reflected in early text, but unfortunately ends up also being in commentaries available to Joseph Smith. That's from the New Testament. That's from the Book of Matthew. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, which of course will make an appearance in the Book of Mormon in 3rd Nephi when Jesus shows up to teach the Nephites essentially the same Sermon on the Mount with a few minor modifications, this being one of them. Matthew 5.22 is the passage in the book of Matthew where Jesus warns that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, that's the key, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. But third Nephi's Jesus omits the qualification without a cause. When Jesus shows up in the book of Mormon, he just says whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. He drops the without a cause that appears in the King James Version of the Bible. And once again, Terrell Givens in his book, By the Hand of Mormon, makes this same kind of argument, which is quoted in the dialogue article as well. Here's what Terrell Givens has to say. This is not to say there are no variations that, on the other hand, suggest an ancient origin for the temple sermon. The temple sermon being the idea of Jesus Christ coming and preaching the Sermon on the Mount in 3 Nephi at the temple at Bountiful. So that's why he calls it the temple sermon. Going on with Terrell Givens. Given the abundance of early manuscripts found since 1830, Terrell Givens concludes, quote, This high degree of confirmation of the received Greek texts speaks generally in favor of the Book of Mormon's Sermon at the Temple. For one could not have gambled wisely on such confirmation a century and a half ago, before the earliest Greek New Testament manuscripts had been discovered. So that's Terrell Givens' rather wordy way of saying, how could Joseph Smith have known? Why does he drop that clause without a cause from the Book of Mormon's version of Matthew 5.22, when nobody in Joseph Smith's day knew that the earliest Greek manuscripts and the best Greek manuscripts of Matthew omitted the same phrase as well. In other words, it looks like without a cause was added later. It was not in the original. And the Book of Mormon follows suit miraculously, apparently, by having Jesus drop the same phrase from his sermon to the Nephites. Well, what ends up happening is that Terrell Givens is actually wrong in his claim that the earliest Greek New Testament manuscripts had not been discovered in Joseph Smith's day when he's dictating the Book of Mormon. In fact, not only had they been discovered, not only was the fact known that without a cause appeared to be a late addition to the Book of Matthew, one that did not appear in the earliest manuscripts and therefore was not original to the text of the Sermon on the Mount. This information was contained, yes, in commentaries available to Joseph Smith. You guessed it, and one of them is, drumroll please, the Adam Clark Bible Commentary published in 1810. 
So those are the two changes to the Book of Mormon text, by the way. The Book of Mormon text, not just the Joseph Smith translation, but the Book of Mormon text that appear to have been made through Joseph Smith's reliance on Bible commentaries of his day. And after presenting a number of different commentaries for both of these changes, the dialogue article concludes with an idea regarding a common source for both variants. And the author is going to ultimately end up with the Adam Clark Bible commentary as his proposed common source for both of these variants. It goes through a great deal of information and a great deal of background regarding Joseph Smith's interest in Methodism, Adam Clark once again being a Methodist minister. And here's some interesting information. We remember the story about the loss of the 116 pages in June of 1828. And this was right around the time that Joseph and Emma's firstborn son died. It was right around this time that Joseph also sought membership in the Methodist Church. So that's right around 1828. It was Emma's and Joseph's brother-in-law, Michael Morse, who as Methodist class leader, enrolled Joseph in the class book. And it was her cousin, i.e. Emma's cousin, Joseph Lewis, who strenuously opposed it, i.e. Joseph Smith being involved in the Methodist class, on the grounds that Joseph was a practicing necromancer and a dealer in enchantments. But regardless, during this time, i.e. 1828, Joseph could not have avoided coming into contact with Methodist books. One of the distinctive features of early Methodism was its extensive use and distribution of literature as a means of evangelization and the promotion of Christian holiness. And this article goes into a great deal more detail to substantiate that point. And now we get to the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. Once again, the Dialogue article. One of the most remarkable Methodist publications of the early 19th century was a shelf-sagging, six-volume set of commentaries on the Bible by Wesley's trusted lieutenant, Adam Clark. Each volume was 10 inches tall, six and a half inches deep, and the entire set took up 13 inches of shelf space. Clark was Methodism's first great biblical scholar. Although entirely self-educated, Clark had a remarkable mind and attained a high level of erudition, which included gaining mastery of numerous languages. Clark did not hesitate to apply the full breadth of his knowledge in his commentary, even though he surely knew that its primary audience would be faithful rank-and-file Methodists rather than the learned. Going down another couple of pages to get to the salient points, once again, I refer you to this article for the entire discussion and all the details. What then did Clark's commentary have to say about the two passages under discussion, i.e. ships of the sea and deleting without a cause from Matthew? Now, I will tell you that the link between Adam Clark's commentary and the ships of the sea passage in Isaiah 2.16 is a bit tenuous, I think. I'll let you read it for yourself so you can draw your own conclusions. What is not tenuous at all is the direct correlation between the Adam Clark Bible commentary and Matthew 5.22. There, Adam Clark says that the common translation without a cause is wanting, i.e. lacking, is wanting in the famous Vatican manuscript and to others. He concludes by saying, it was probably a marginal gloss originally, which in the process of time crept into the text. In other words, without a cause was not in the original. And finally, let's get to the conclusion of this very interesting paper from Dialogue 2003 by Ronald V. Huggins. Conclusion, writers like Terrell Givens, John A. Twetness, 
and John W. Welch, he quotes all three in the body of the paper, have been too quick to deny that Joseph Smith could have known what anybody with religious curiosity might have known in his day. I.e., it's in all these commentaries. Anybody who's religiously curious could have looked it up and found it out for themselves. It was not something that Joseph Smith could not have known, and these three authors are too quick to deny it. Joseph Smith's rendering of these verses do, however, raise the question of how he came to them. The best answer seems to be that he learned of them while interacting with Emma Smith's Methodist relatives. They are, in fact, just the kind of changes one might expect to find given such a context. The most immediate source that might be suggested for both readings is Wesley's explanatory notes on the Old and New Testament. It is also possible that Joseph learned of them indirectly from Luther's German Bible through the mediation of the Whitmer family. Or perhaps he learned of them from one and had them reinforced by the other. So why have I taken all this time to go to such lengths to demonstrate that these two changes that Joseph Smith made in the Book of Mormon appear to be based upon his reliance of other Bible commentaries, and possibly including the Adam Clark Bible commentary? Of course, the Adam Clark Bible commentary was not the only commentary in circulation at the time. There were a number of them, and many of those are referenced in this dialogue article. Well, the reason I've gone into all this detail is because these are two examples that show up in the Book of Mormon, not just in the Joseph Smith translation. So it appears then that what Haley Wilson Lamont and Thomas Wayment have demonstrated in their recently released paper, i.e. that Joseph Smith without a doubt relied on and used as a source the Adam Clark Bible commentary for his Joseph Smith translation is something that he did not only with the Joseph Smith translation, but something that he appears to have done one year before in 1829 with his translation of the Book of Mormon. So how are we to conceive of Joseph Smith translating characters from gold plates and yet at the same time managing to somehow rely on Bible commentaries as part of his translation. As I said earlier, it's one thing to make sense of that, as Professor Thomas Wayman tries diligently to do so in this paper. It's one thing to make sense of that with regard to the Joseph Smith translation, where Joseph Smith is not apparently purporting to actually translate language from one document into English. It is much more difficult to conceive of this happening in the context where, as in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith is purporting to translate the characters that are inscribed on the gold plates into English. How is it that he's managing to rely on Bible commentaries at the same time that he's just supposed to be translating from one language into another? That's what makes it so much more difficult, and that's what makes it undercut the method that Joseph Smith claimed to use to translate the Book of Mormon. Okay then, I think enough has been said based upon this 2003 dialogue article that there is definitely evidence to support the idea that Joseph Smith in his translation of the Book of Mormon relied upon the Adam Clark Bible commentary for dropping the phrase without a cause from Matthew 5.22 and also possibly Adam Clark's Bible commentary but more likely different commentaries also available to Joseph Smith for adding the line, all ships of the sea, to the passage in Isaiah. These are not necessarily evidence that Joseph Smith was restoring or deleting from the Bible by the inspiration of God in order to make them conform to earlier texts because the same information was available to Joseph Smith in his community from learned Bible commentaries. I have to give you a brief personal note. I was very disappointed in or around 2003 when I first read this dialogue article, especially the part regarding without a cause from Matthew 5.22, and that is because from the days of my being a devout Mormon apologist in the 1980s and thereafter, I always thought it was a very nice 
proof of Joseph Smith's prophetic ability that he did drop the line without a cause for Matthew 5.22. I thought that showed definite prophetic ability on his part and that he was indeed conforming his scripture with the earliest manuscripts, manuscripts of which he had no knowledge and indeed could have no knowledge. It was therefore with some disappointment that I found out that this was not the neat proof that I had thought it was and that Joseph Smith could have obtained this information simply by consulting Bible commentaries that were in existence in his day. But the next thing I want to talk about is this idea that the Joseph Smith translation was completely different in its procedure from all of Joseph Smith's other translation projects. We've talked about this before. The Joseph Smith translation is usually put forward as a translation project. Once again, Joseph Smith insists on using that word translation, even though it seems quite different from his other translation projects, which were more in the line of standard translations, the Book of Mormon translation project, the Book of Abraham translation project, and even the Kinderhook plates translation project. In each of those projects, the word translation seems to much more readily conform with what it is that Joseph Smith presented as doing. The Joseph Smith translation, however, not being from one parchment or manuscript in a foreign language into English, seems to be very different. And once again, that difference is attempted to be exploited, I think, in the paper by Haley Wilson Lamont and Thomas Wayment in order to make room for Joseph Smith studying it out in his mind and consulting learning commentaries, including the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, as part of his divine inspiration in producing the Joseph Smith translation. That wiggle room, that leeway, that elbow space is made available because the Joseph Smith translation does not purport to be translating from one language into another. Now, this next part is going to be completely speculative on my part, and I want to identify it as such right now. But it is possible that really the Joseph Smith translation was not any different or much different from Joseph Smith's other translation projects. What I am suggesting is that even though there is very little written about the process and what it was that Joseph Smith was doing when he was translating the Bible, and so there's not a lot of documentary evidence to support one theory or another, I'm going to put it forward as a theory, which I have not heard before, that actually Joseph Smith did conceive of himself as translating from one language into another, even in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Now, what does that mean? Because that doesn't seem to make any sense. Let me explain. And I think the linchpin to this idea may be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 7. Because in section 7, Joseph Smith purports to be translating a parchment that was written by John, the author of the Gospel of John, which had been written down on parchment by John and then hidden up. If we go to section 7 in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is the heading. Revelation given to Joseph Smith the prophet and Oliver Cowdery in Harmony, Pennsylvania, April 1829. By the way, that's going to be an important date to remember, April 1829. This is during the translation of the Book of Mormon. So while Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon, along with Oliver Cowdery acting as his scribe, he also receives this revelation in section 7. And the heading goes on to say, When they inquired through the Urim and Thummim, remember Joseph Smith is using the Urim and Thummim at this time, as to whether John, the beloved disciple, tarried in the flesh or had died. The revelation is a translated version of the record made on parchment by John and hidden up by himself. And the reference there is the History of the Church, Volume 1, pages 35 through 36. Now, the obvious connection Between this question rising in Joseph Smith's mind during the translation of the Book of Mormon would naturally be in 3 Nephi chapter 28, 
where he talks about the three Nephites and how there were 12 disciples that Jesus called among the Nephites and three of them wanted Jesus to allow them to tarry in the flesh until he came again, i.e. the second coming, so that they could continue to labor to bring souls unto Christ. In 3 Nephi chapter 28, verse 6, Jesus says, addressing those three Nephites of the twelve, And he said unto them, Behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry, before that I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. And he goes on to talk about how blessed they are for this desire. And then in verse 9 it says, For ye have desired that ye might bring the souls of men unto me, while the world shall stand. And then in verse 12, And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he touched every one of them with his finger, save it were the three who were to tarry, and then he departed. And now, very interestingly, when we go on further in this chapter, it talks about the state of these three individuals and what the change was that was wrought upon them. Verse 36, And now behold, and now this is Mormon speaking in the record, the character Mormon speaking as he is transcribing and editing and compiling this record onto the gold plates. And now behold, as I spake concerning those whom the Lord hath chosen, those three Nephites, yea, even three who were caught up into the heavens, that I knew not whether they were cleansed from mortality to immortality. Now get this in verse 37. Remember, keep in mind section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants and the inquiry that is made of God at that point regarding the status of John in the New Testament, who is specifically linked in this chapter to the three Nephites, as if we couldn't figure that out on our own. It's very similar, isn't it? Verse 37 says, In the words of Mormon, But behold, since I wrote, I have inquired of the Lord, and he hath made it manifest unto me, that there must needs be a change wrought upon their bodies, or else it needs be that they must taste of death. So here's Mormon in the Book of Mormon, in 3 Nephi chapter 28, saying he's inquired of the Lord about the state of these three Nephites and the change that was wrought upon them, and yet probably at this very time, or near this very time, in April of 1829, Joseph Smith is inquiring of the Lord regarding the state of John the Beloved and how it was that he was able to tarry and not taste of death. So what I'm asking is, is this Mormon in the Book of Mormon asking it of the Lord and inquiring of the Lord and finding out more about these three Nephites, a reflection of Joseph Smith at or around the same time inquiring of the Lord with the same type of questions about John the Beloved and his tarrying in the flesh as we find in section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Is Mormon's inquiry of God in the Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi 28, reflective of Joseph Smith's inquiry of God as reflected in Section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants? Now, Section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants is interesting because what it actually is, is an early example of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. Now, Joseph Smith's real translation of the Bible, the formal translation of the Bible, does not commence until June of 1830. We all know that. And yet, in April of 1829, Joseph Smith is already commencing his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible with regard to a passage, a somewhat cryptic passage, at the end of the Gospel of John. And indeed, we could also see this example from Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, where he adds the line about ships of the sea 
and also dropping the phrase without a cause from Matthew 5.22 as also being an early beginning of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. In other words, what he started in the Book of Mormon, he continued and more fully completed with his translation of the Bible, which began the following year. But once again, back to section 7. Here's the passage from the end of the Book of John, which is so cryptic. It's John chapter 21, and it's right after the whole exchange between Jesus and Peter that we hear about so often in the church, where Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep three times, right? So now in verse 20, we have the following. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which has traditionally been understood to be John, the beloved John the Apostle, although he is never so identified actually in the text of the gospel itself. That has become the tradition. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Verse 21, Peter seeing him, i.e. John, we'll just say John for purposes of this, Peter seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? I.e., what shall John do, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. So that's verse 22. That is the cryptic passage in the Gospel of John that has elicited so much excitement, interest, and comment over the centuries. And verse 23 says, Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? So it appears to be, even at the time, of the New Testament. At the time the Gospel of John was written, this saying was abroad among the brethren that the beloved disciple would not die. And yet it appears to correct that idea, saying Jesus did not say he shall not die, but what Jesus said was, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? So this has been the question, is Jesus actually saying that he will not die, or is he saying something else? And of course, this is what has elicited all the commentary. And that is precisely the question that Joseph Smith is asking of God through the Urim and Thummim in April of 1829 when he is translating the Book of Mormon and Oliver Cowdery is acting as his scribe. And here's the answer. What this does is it takes those two verses or so and makes eight verses out of them and contextualizes them in such a way as to answer it to mean that yes, John the Beloved would not die until Jesus came again, just like the three Nephites in 3 Nephi chapter 28. Now look at this and see if you can see an early version of the Joseph Smith translation as far as these verses at the end of John go. Here's section 7. I'll read it quickly. And the Lord said unto me, John, my beloved, what desirest thou? For if you shall ask what you will, it shall be granted unto you. Now, none of this is in the Gospel of John. This is a pure addition through this revelation. And I said unto him, Lord, give unto me power over death, that I may live and bring souls unto thee. So here we have John explicitly asking God what it is that he wants to do and what it is he wants Jesus to give him, just the same as the three Nephites did, of course. And the Lord said unto me, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Because thou desirest this, thou shalt tarry until I come in my glory, and shalt prophesy before nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And for this cause, the Lord said unto Peter, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? For he desired of me that he might bring souls unto me. But thou desirest that thou mightest speedily come unto me in my kingdom. So this is the one phrase that this entire revelation is explaining. In verse 4 where it says, And for this cause the Lord said unto Peter, 
If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? See how this entire eight verse revelation is explaining what that means. And it's explaining it in terms of the exact same thing as is written in 3 Nephi chapter 28. So this is Jesus talking to Peter. And for this cause, the Lord said unto Peter, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? For he, John, desired of me that he might bring souls unto me. But thou, Peter, desirest that thou mightest speedily come unto me in my kingdom. I say unto thee, Peter, this was a good desire. But my beloved has desired that he might do more or a greater work yet among men than what he has before done. Yea, he has undertaken a greater work, therefore I will make him as flaming fire and a ministering angel. He shall minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation who dwell on the earth. And I will make thee to minister for him and for thy brother James. And unto you three I will give this power. Now this is strange, by the way, because Jesus has been speaking directly to Peter clearly from the context where he says, yea, he has undertaken a greater work. He's talking to Peter and he's referring to John. He has undertaken a greater work. Therefore, I will make him, that's John, as flaming fire and a ministering angel. He, John, shall minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation who dwell on the earth. And now all of a sudden in verse seven, it switches and it says, and I will make thee to minister for him and for thy brother James. Suddenly now it goes from addressing Peter to addressing John. How do we know that? Because John is the one who had the brother named James, not Peter, right? Peter's brother is Andrew. So it's clear that all of a sudden, without any warning or any notice to the reader, verse seven suddenly shifts from Jesus talking to Peter to talking to John. And he says, and I will make thee John to minister for him, Peter, and for thy brother, James. And unto you three, I will give this power and the keys of this ministry until I come. Finally, verse eight, verily I say unto you, ye shall both have according to your desires for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. So why am I going into section seven here in such detail? Well, first off, because I find it interesting and the connections between this section and the Book of Mormon talking about the three Nephites, but also because this is clearly an early example or a prototype of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, which he would begin formally the following year. Once again, section seven, received in April of 1829, the Joseph Smith translation commenced in June of 1830. And not only that, section seven is clear that this is not something where Joseph Smith is claiming just to get this out of the ether or God whispering it in his ear. He is translating a document. He's translating a parchment. And it is a parchment that Joseph Smith says was written upon by John and hidden up. And if John's writing that parchment, John is not writing it in English. He's writing it in Greek, most likely. It's certainly a foreign language, whether it's Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek. It is a foreign language. It's not written in English. So what Joseph Smith is claiming to do here is to translate by means of the Urim and Thummim, one language on a parchment written in ancient characters into English. And it appears to make no difference to Joseph Smith that he does not have the parchment right in front of him. It's somewhere over in Palestine for crying out loud. It's on the other side of the world. It's not even clear whether it still exists according to this revelation. It could have just been written at some time by John and then destroyed, or it could have been hidden up and still in existence. But nevertheless, one of Joseph Smith's powers by the Urim and Thummim is to be able to look at documents. It's sort of like remote viewing. He can be in New York or Pennsylvania and he can view documents that are on the other side of the world and that were written 1800 years before he's translating them. Now that might sound strange, 
But really, isn't Joseph Smith doing the exact same thing when he's translating the Book of Mormon? Now, the gold plates may not be on the other side of the world. They may be on the table next to Joseph Smith, wrapped in a napkin while he is translating them, or they may be in a log hidden out in the woods, or they may be somewhere else nearby. But the proximity really doesn't appear to be the point. The fact is that Joseph Smith claims to be translating the characters on the gold plates of the Book of Mormon, even though he cannot see them, even though they are hidden from what would be his natural view, they are revealed to him through the Urim and Thummim. So whether Joseph Smith is translating characters from an ancient language written on a document that's on the other side of the world, or whether he's doing the same thing with the gold plates from a document that is maybe in the next room, the idea is still the same. The distance isn't the issue. The important part is that Joseph Smith claims to be able to translate documents that are not in his immediate possession and line of sight. So why I say all that is to come back to the Joseph Smith translation. I was saying how it is very common to hear that the Joseph Smith translation is completely different than any of Joseph Smith's other translation projects. I am suggesting that maybe it wasn't. Maybe actually it was quite similar to his other translation projects. Once again, this is speculation, but we have the Book of Mormon being a translation project according to a more normal and understandable way of translating, at least as we understand the word translate to be normally used. In 1829, we have Joseph Smith doing the Book of Abraham project commencing in 1835, just six years later, and sandwiched in between those two is the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. So what I'm proposing is that Joseph Smith may have conceived his translation of the Bible in very much the same way he conceived of his translation of this puzzling verse at the end of the Gospel of John in section 7 as something that was accomplished by his use of the Urim and Thummim and somehow conquering time and space and remote viewing the original manuscripts of the Bible as he was doing the Joseph Smith translation not only being able to see the characters that are written on those original manuscripts, but also translating them into English by the gift and power of God. Okay, one last thing I got to talk about here before I close. I should also say that to make this change found in section 7, this expansion upon John chapter 21 verse 22, and to make this expansion in section 7. This is an idea that was very common in Joseph Smith's day, that John the Beloved was indeed allowed to tarry or remain on the earth until Jesus came again. It was not necessary, I think, for Joseph Smith to consult the Adam Clark Bible commentary in order to get that idea, but if he did so, he would have found the following. Regarding the expression in verse 22, if I will that he tarry till I come, there are several opinions put forth, but first among those is this. Some have concluded from these words, this is Adam Clark, some have concluded from these words that John should never die. See, a lot of people had already concluded this already. Many eminent men, ancients and moderns, have been and are of this opinion. So that's why I say that Joseph Smith didn't have to consult the Adam Clark commentary to come up with this idea, but if he had, that's what he would have found right there. And actually, Adam Clark goes on with several other ideas and several other proposed interpretations of this verse. And the fourth and final one, which Adam Clark says that he kind of leans toward as being the correct one, is very different. It's actually not supernatural. It's really not an instance of John never dying. It's simply Jesus taking Peter over to the side to talk with him alone apart from John and telling John, hey, wait here till we come back. 
That's what he means, Terry, till I come. Wait here till I get back in a few minutes after talking with Peter. But even though that is the interpretation that Adam Clark favors, that's the fourth interpretation he proposes, he concludes his commentary on this verse by saying this, For nearly 1,800 years, the greatest men in the world have been puzzled with this passage. It would appear intolerable in me to attempt to decide where so many eminent doctors have disagreed and do still disagree. I rather lean to the fourth opinion. You see, that's where he says he rather leans toward it, but he's not going to come down and make a hard and fast decision where so many learned people, both ancient and modern, have held disparate views. And now, in conclusion, I'm going to go briefly to, of all things, the Charles Antone story in Mormon history and see if there might be a connection to the Adam Clark Bible commentary there as well. I have not read this anywhere. I've just been thinking about this a lot, and this idea occurred to me while I was preparing for this podcast. Okay, going back to the Adam Clark Bible commentary, and remember that story by Nathaniel Lewis that we talked about earlier? Nathaniel Lewis being Emma Smith's uncle, and the story going that he pulled down a copy of Adam Clark's Bible commentary and opened it up and showed Joseph Smith some of the ancient characters that were written in it. I have looked through a number of the pages of the actual original Adam Clark Bible commentary. I did it online, so I cheated, I guess. But you can actually find it in its original form. And not only is it written in English, of course it's written in English because you have to be able to understand it if you're an English reading audience, but he has also places throughout in different areas where he includes actual characters from several different languages. There's Syriac, there's Babylonian or Chaldean in some places, and I believe that that was specifically in the book of Daniel, which makes sense. And there were also, I believe, Arabic letters contained in different places in the Adam Clark Bible commentary. So it's unclear from this story from Nathaniel Lewis which of the different alphabets or the different characters from which language it was that he proposed to Joseph Smith, the experiment that Joseph Smith ended up declining, if you'll recall. But characters from all those different languages do appear in the Adam Clark Bible commentary, and he will place them in his commentary, those ancient characters from the different languages. He will identify what languages they're from, and then he will provide a translation of them. Now, we could spend an entire podcast talking about the Charles Antone incident and Martin Harris taking transcriptions of the characters from the gold plates to Charles Antone in New York and getting Charles Antone's learned opinion about whether they were authentic characters. We're not going to do that today. What I am going to do, however, is go to the 1838 history of the church and look at what Joseph Smith represents Martin Harris as having said regarding that experience because I think it's interesting and it's possible it shows a reliance on the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Once again, this is purely speculation and yet it seems to make some degree of sense of an otherwise inexplicable aspect of this story as it's recorded in the church history. If you go to your pearl of great price because it is included there and go to Joseph Smith history, verse 64, here is what Joseph Smith is presenting Martin Harris as having said. I went to the city of New York and presented the characters which had been transcribed. Now notice there's going to be two sets here of characters. There's going to be characters which have been transcribed and then there's going to be a separate set of characters on another piece of paper according to this account, both of which Martin Harris presents to Charles Antone for his opinion. And the second set of characters have not been transcribed. It's just the characters themselves. Okay, going back to the narrative. I went to the city of New York and presented the characters which had been translated with the translation thereof to Professor Charles Antone, a gentleman celebrated for his literary attainments. 
Professor Antone stated that the translation was correct, more so than any he had before seen translated from the Egyptian. Now, that's the first piece of paper that Martin Harris shows to Charles Antone. Purported to be Egyptian characters with their translation into English, Charles Antone is reputed to have said that the translation was correct, more so than any he had ever seen. Now, of course, the problem with this is, is that regardless of whether Charles Antone said it or not, nobody, including Charles Antone, in 1828, knew Egyptian well enough to have been able to vouch for the authenticity and the accurateness of any translation that Joseph Smith made. The study of Egyptian hieroglyphics was in its infancy at the time, and even the brightest person in the entire world could not have done what Charles Antone is reported to have done. So therefore, it seems kind of unlikely that Charles Antone actually said that. I mean, it's possible, I suppose, but it seems very unlikely that he actually said that. However, now let's get to the second piece of paper that Martin Harris shows Charles Antone, because it has a bunch of characters on it, but no translation. Here's what it says. Right after it says that Professor Antone stated that the translation was correct, more so than any he had before seen translated from the Egyptian, period, it goes on. I then showed him those which were not yet translated. So he shows him the characters that had not yet been translated. And he, Charles Antone, said that they were Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic. And he said they were true characters. And then follows a story about the certificate and him asking about how he got it and there was an angel and he tears up the certificate, that kind of thing. But what I want to focus on is that according to the Joseph Smith history, it represents Charles Antone as having looked at characters that were drawn off the plates, the gold plates, and identifying them as true characters in Egyptian. Well, that would be expected, wouldn't it? Because they are the gold plates. They're Egyptian, Chaldaic though, why on earth would there be Chaldaic or Babylonian characters on the gold plates? There's nothing in the Book of Mormon that would account for that, especially since the people in the Book of Mormon, i.e. Lehi and company, are represented as having left Jerusalem right before the Babylonian captivity. There's Egyptian Chaldaic, Assyriac, why would there be Assyriac characters on the gold plates, and Arabic, why would there be Arabic characters on the gold plates? Especially when the Book of Mormon itself presents itself as having been written in reformed Egyptian. That's in Mormon chapter 9, verse 32, which says that, quote, the characters which are called among us the reformed Egyptian, that they were handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech, and that, quote, none other people knoweth our language, period, end of quote. So if the Book of Mormon presents itself as being written in reformed Egyptian, and that nobody else knows the language, why would this whole incident with Charles Antone have occurred in the first place? That's the question. If nobody knows the language, why would you be taking it to somebody who knows languages and asking him for his opinion as to whether it's a correct language and whether it's a correct translation? That's a bit of an oddity, I have to admit. And yet, the first language that Charles Antone is represented as saying was presented, the characters were Egyptian, Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyrian, and Arabic. Now, Egyptian, I thought, wait a second, wasn't the Book of Mormon written in Reformed Egyptian according to what Mormons said? Why would there be any Egyptian characters that could be identified as Egyptian characters if they had been changed by the Nephites and now they were Reformed Egyptian? Well, I suppose that if I think about it a little bit further, it is possible that the small plates of Nephi, which were substituted in after the loss of the 116 pages, those are written in first person. Those would have likely been written 
in real Egyptian because the language had not been changed among the Nephites over the course of a thousand years into reformed Egyptian. So if Joseph Smith is making the transcription of the characters from the small plates of Nephi, which would be at the beginning, right? Or at least the first part of the Book of Mormon as we have it today in the Book of Mormon. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. The 116 lost pages were part of Mormon's abridgment. Therefore, they would have been written in reformed Egyptian as well. So I'm sorry, I'm not sure that this is getting us anywhere helpful for making any sense out of this story. But it does raise the question in my mind, unfortunately, that if Mormon is writing at the end of Mormon history and the language has been changed from Egyptian to Reformed Egyptian over the course of a thousand years, and it's been changed so much that no man knoweth their language, how is it that when Mormon gets a hold of these early plates that were written a thousand years before him in the original Egyptian language purportedly, that Mormon is even able to read them. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's a logical explanation for that. Maybe they were similar enough that he could figure it out because he had to be able to read them to know what was in them. He comments about how great they were and how they're so spiritual and how they're so wonderful and that he's going to put them in as a duplicate record. So obviously he's able to read them according to the Book of Mormon. And yet the question is raised in my mind as to how he was able to read them if indeed it is the version of Egyptian from a thousand years earlier in Nephite history in the Book of Mormon itself and Mormon himself, in the Book of Mormon itself, says that they have changed the language so that no man knoweth their language. Maybe Mormon was also a polyglot. But regardless of that diversion, let's get back on track. Here's the deal. Why would Joseph Smith, given that the Book of Mormon presents itself as being written in Egyptian, possibly Hebrew, but there's nothing in the Book of Mormon that would even suggest that it was written in any characters of Chaldaic or Babylonian or Assyriac or Arabic. There's nothing in the Book of Mormon about that. Why would Joseph Smith present this story through Martin Harris and say that Charles Antone positively identified characters, untranslated characters, but characters that were drawn by Joseph Smith from the gold plates as Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic, in addition to Egyptian? That just doesn't make any sense to me. And yet there it is in the Joseph Smith history written in 1838. Now, because this seems to undermine the narrative of the Book of Mormon and how the Book of Mormon itself presents itself as having been written in the languages it was written in, that this account of the story is perhaps more likely to be true. In other words, what I'm doing here is I am applying for my biblical studies the criterion of embarrassment. In biblical studies, if you look at something, say, in the New Testament that would have been embarrassing to later Christians, it is more likely, scholars believe, that that statement is probably original to the text. A famous example is a passage saying that Joseph was Jesus's father, okay? Because some manuscripts have that. And of course, later on, and not that much later on in Christianity, Joseph was no longer seen as Jesus's father. God was Jesus's father, and therefore Joseph would not be referred to as Jesus's father, at least not by later Christians who believe that God was his father. That would be an embarrassment to later Christians. No later Christian in copying the manuscripts is going to change that God was Jesus's father to Joseph was Jesus's father. Now they certainly might change it the other way around to comport with their developing beliefs and their developing Christology, right? But that's the criterion of embarrassment. And therefore, if we find manuscripts that contain something that is embarrassing and seems to undercut later notions about Christianity, that is considered to be the criterion of embarrassment. And that is why it is considered to be more likely to be 
original, and authentic. In the same way, the statement here in the Joseph Smith history, verse 64, in the Pearl of Great Price, that represents Charles Anton as saying that there were characters on the gold plates, or drawn from the gold plates, copied off the gold plates by Joseph Smith, that were Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic. That seems to qualify to me as perhaps fitting this criterion of embarrassment. And therefore, since it undercuts the narrative of the Book of Mormon, and therefore would be an embarrassment, to some extent, it is perhaps more likely that this is something that actually happened and something that Charles Antone may actually have said. Now, if this actually happened, and I think a lot of this stuff is really up for grabs regarding Charles Antone. I mean, there's conflicting stories on both sides and both sides tend to contradict themselves. Once again, we're not going to get into detail here about that part of the story. But if this part actually happened, then Joseph Smith somehow managed to acquire and be able to copy down characters, legitimate characters, which Charles Antone identified as being legitimate characters from different languages, Egyptian, Chaldaic, Assyriac, and Arabic. And if you're wondering where on earth this is going, I'll bet you're miles ahead of me by this point. If Joseph Smith actually did that, wrote down these characters, and if Charles Anton actually said, yes, these are true characters, there's no translations to them, but these are actual characters from these actual ancient languages, where could Joseph Smith have come up with them? The answer is easy. The Adam Clark Bible Commentary. Yes, that's exactly where I was heading because the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, as I said, in different places has representations of different characters from these different languages. And it would have been a simple matter for Joseph Smith to go into the commentary, copy off on a piece of paper some of these characters from different languages, have Martin Harris take it to New York, and have Charles Anton say, yep, those are legitimate characters. So in conclusion to the story, because we know now that Joseph Smith relied heavily on the Adam Clark Bible Commentary in his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, we know he was familiar with the contents of the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, and it is possible that as early as 1828, when the Charles Antone incident happened, he was cribbing, again, from the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, only he was cribbing characters from ancient languages to put on a piece of paper to tell Martin Harris he had drawn those from the plates instead of from the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, and that Charles Antone did, in fact, confirm that those characters taken from the Adam Clark Bible commentary originally were actually authentic characters. That's the point. And the reason I think that's of interest is because it pushes back, if correct, it would push back Joseph Smith's use of the Adam Clark Bible commentary to 1828 when he was translating the original 116 pages with Martin Harris. He would have appeared to have continued to rely on the Adam Clark Bible commentary in 1829 when he was translating the Book of Mormon, as reflected in our analysis of that 2003 dialogue article. And then in 1830, when he picks up with the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, once again, he goes back to his old friend, Adam Clark and his commentary in order to continue to rely upon it there for that project, which he may or may not have conceived of as actually viewing the original manuscripts on which the Bible books were written and translating them from the ancient languages into English via the Urim and Thummim, just as he did the parchment that was written by John and hidden up in section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which he did in April of 1829 with Oliver Cowdery, by use of the Urim and Thummim, even at the same time as he was translating the Book of Mormon, and which has an obvious connection between John tarrying until Jesus came again, in other words, not dying and being allowed to live and bring souls unto Christ, just the same way as the three Nephites were allowed to do 
in 3 Nephi chapter 28. Now, I had intended to end the podcast at that point, but since the time I was recording and through research in other areas, three more ideas have come to me that bear on this issue, and I want to record them here because I'm worried that if I don't do that, I'll forget them and never remember to bring them up again. Number one is this. We've already talked about how the Book of Mormon itself describes the language as Reformed Egyptian, and that the language had been changed among the people so that nobody else knows the language. Let me just read that again so we're sure on the language. It's from Mormon in the Book of Mormon, but it's Moroni writing in the Book of Mormon. It's Mormon chapter 9, verse 34. But the Lord knoweth the things which we have written, and also that none other people knoweth our language. And because that none other people knoweth our language, therefore he hath prepared means for the interpretation thereof. That's the verse. Now, that's a very interesting statement in the Book of Mormon when you look at it, because who is that statement being written to? In other words, if you have a writer, who I believe is Moroni writing in the Book of Mormon, writing this down, who is he writing that to? Why is he making that point that no other man knoweth the language? Not only that, it seems like it could be a self-serving statement. In other words, who is the audience for that? Who is that message intended for? It's hard for me to understand who the audience is among Moroni's contemporaries because who else among his contemporaries is going to read that and why would that make any difference? It is a strange statement all around, but I think I think the reason it's there is not for Moroni's contemporaries back in the 4th or 5th century CE when he is reportedly writing it on the gold plates. I think that message is for a contemporary audience, a contemporary audience of Joseph Smith's. It is important for some reason for some contemporary of Joseph Smith to know and understand that the characters in the Book of Mormon have been reformed so that no man knows them. It cannot be understood by anybody else. Now, I referenced earlier that this seems to make no sense. How can the Book of Mormon present itself as being written in a language that nobody knows and yet have that representation make sense in the context of the whole Charles Anton story? If the Book of Mormon says it's written in a language nobody knows, how is it that now characters from those plates that nobody knows can be taken to an expert in New York and the story related that he recognized them, that the characters were true Egyptian and other languages as we talked about, but the characters were true Egyptian and that the translation thereof was correct. Well, according to the Book of Mormon, nobody could recognize the characters and according to the Book of Mormon, nobody could translate them, including Charles Anton. So how do these two contradictory stories make sense? Well, what I am going to suggest is that this cryptic passage in the Book of Mormon is put there as an explanation for why it was that Charles Anton could not recognize the characters and could not vouch for the translation. We know that there are competing versions of the account of the meeting between Charles Anton and Martin Harris. The only thing that we know for sure is that that meeting actually happened because we have accounts from Martin Harris, through Joseph Smith at least, and also we have accounts from Charles Anton about the encounter. Now, Charles Anton says it was a bunch of gobbledygook and it was obvious that somebody was trying to take advantage of this credulous farmer to get his money and that he never vouched for the accuracy of the translation. So what I'm getting at here is that this verse in the Book of Mormon makes sense only if Charles Anton's story is the correct story. It doesn't make any sense if the Mormon version, Martin Harris's version of the Charles Anton meeting is correct, but it does make sense if Charles Anton's version of the story was correct. So here's what I am proposing actually happened, that Martin Harris did take some characters with a translation 
to New York. He met with Charles Anton as well as others, and Charles Anton did what Charles Anton said he did, which he said, this is a bunch of gobbledygook. These are not real characters. Martin Harris now goes back dejected to Joseph Smith and reports what it was that Charles Anton told him about the characters, that they're gobbledygook and that they are not real Egyptian. And because they're not real Egyptian, they have no connection that he can tell anyway between the characters and the translation provided by Joseph Smith. Now, Joseph Smith has to come up with an explanation for Martin Harris as to why that would be the case. Why can't Charles Anton recognize these characters and why can he not vouch for Joseph Smith's translation of them? Bing! Light bulb! Well, here's the reason, Martin. The reason is because this isn't actual Egyptian. This is reformed Egyptian. The Nephites reformed the Egyptian over the course of their history so that, drumroll please, none other people knoweth our language. Obviously, whatever explanation was given was sufficient to renew Martin Harris's faith in Joseph Smith's translating abilities such that he mortgaged his farm in order to finance the printing of the first edition of the Book of Mormon. And what appears now in the subsequent translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today? Well, when we get to the Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, we have that expression codified in the translation itself. We have Moroni writing that the Egyptian had been reformed among us so that none other people knoweth our language. Mormon 9 verse 34. So that's a little historical speculation on my part based upon this verse from the Book of Mormon. It seems to make some degree of sense to me, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Now, the second of the three points I wanted to make has to do with Joseph Smith's use of the Bible when he was dictating the Book of Mormon. Ever since Sidney B. Sperry back in the 1940s, at least, Mormon apologists have speculated that because of the vast swaths of quotations and excerpts from the King James Version of the Bible, particularly Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon, as well as the Sermon on the Mount in 3 Nephi, that these are so exact and so lengthy that what must have happened is that Joseph Smith did use a Bible when he was translating the Book of Mormon. Indeed, I think this is probably the most widely held opinion even among Mormon apologists. And the general theory is this, is that while Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon, he came upon passages that he recognized or understood to be passages that were quoting from the Bible. Therefore, he grabbed his Bible, opened it up to the passage in question, and began reading from the Bible itself while the scribe took it down in dictation. And that Joseph Smith varied from the Bible translation only where Joseph Smith felt inspired by the Spirit to do so. You've probably heard that argument before. And indeed, once again, I think that's the most widely held opinion among Mormon apologists today. I know that was what I understood and what I presented to other people as well as an explanation for these large sections of King James Bible in the Book of Mormon. So having said that much, we've also noticed that there appear to be places in the Book of Mormon that rely on the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Now, I've mentioned one or two of these already in this podcast. That was referencing the 2003 Dialogue article. I will tell you right now that I have heard it through the grapevine that work is already ongoing among a particular LDS scholar comparing the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon to the Adam Clark Bible Commentary. And the word that I'm getting from the people who know about this research and have actually looked at this research, it hasn't been published yet, it's ongoing, is that there are many, many strong connections between the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon and the Adam Clark Bible Commentary, in addition to the ones that were noted in the 2003 Dialogue article. Which now raises the question, 
Did Joseph Smith also have, in addition to the Bible, did he have an Adam Clark Bible commentary with him when he was translating the Book of Mormon, or did he just remember the changes and incorporate those into the Bible passages that were in the Book of Mormon? This is starting to sound very complicated, because what I'm envisioning is Joseph Smith having a Bible over here, and the Adam Clark Bible commentary over here, and going back and forth between the Bible and the Adam Clark Bible commentary to quote from the Bible and to make the changes that are referenced in the Adam Clark Bible commentary, but then it occurred to me once again, a light bulb moment, wait a second. The Adam Clark Bible commentary is six volumes. It is massive. It is 13 inches long if you set it side by side up on your shelf. But the important thing to note is this. The entire text of the Bible is included in the Adam Clark Bible commentary. And what I mean by that is you'll have sections of the Bible on each page as you go through and the commentary itself appears as lengthy footnotes beneath the text of the Bible. If you were to think about the LDS version, of the Bible, which you probably have or have looked at, and you know that you have the Bible passages on the top part of the page, and then there's a line at the bottom, and beneath that you have the footnotes, right? Well, in the Adam Clark Bible commentary, a similar thing is going on, except that line at the bottom that separates the text from the Bible from the footnotes in the LDS version of the Bible is much higher up on the page, and there's much less Bible verses at the top of the page, and much more commentary underneath it. That's how Adam Clark did his Bible commentary. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Joseph Smith did not have to have a Bible and an Adam Clark Bible commentary while he was translating the Book of Mormon, if indeed this is what was happening. He only needed to have the Adam Clark Bible commentary with him because the Adam Clark Bible commentary itself contained the entire text of the Bible as well. So once again, this is speculation on my part, and I want to identify it as this, but I think it's very interesting that now that apologists since Sidney B. Sperry have basically conceded the idea that Joseph Smith must have had a Bible with him while he was translating or dictating the Book of Mormon that he referred to when he was going to those Bible passages in the Book of Mormon, he didn't have to have a separate Bible to do that. All he had to have was the Adam Clark Bible commentary and be reading the Bible passages from the Adam Clark Bible commentary at the top of the page, and then he could incorporate whatever changes he wanted to make that were in the commentary below those Bible verses at the bottom of the page in the commentary. Okay, so now for the third and final point. Honestly, this is the final point I want to make, but this is fascinating to me. So what we have seen now is an absolute ironclad link between the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible and the Adam Clark Bible commentary. And the research is ongoing to support this. Links between the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today and the Adam Clark Bible commentary. That was in 1829. And we also perhaps have links between the Adam Clark Bible commentary and even the 116 pages project, which is connected with the visit of Martin Harris to Charles Anton in New York City in 1828. So let's go reverse on that. We have a connection with the Adam Clark Bible Commentary in the 116 pages in 1828. We have a connection between the Adam Clark Bible Commentary and the dictation of the Book of Mormon in 1829. We have a connection between the Adam Clark Bible Commentary and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible from 1830 to 1833. Well, what about the Book of Abraham? Could there possibly be a connection between Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Abraham and the Adam Clark Bible Commentary? And the answer to that is yes. 
and I am indebted to Dan Vogel for this insight which he made in connection with the interview that John DeLynn and I are doing of Dr. Robert Rittner that is ongoing. We've got two parts of that interview already published and we're planning a third part, maybe a fourth part, in the future. Now as you know, I used to be a Mormon apologist and part of that field had to do with my study of the Book of Abraham and apologetic links between the Book of Abraham and the Old World, i.e. places where Joseph Smith got it right. And one of those places, there aren't a whole lot of them, but one of those places had to do with facsimile 1 and figure 9. That's the crocodile underneath the lion couch. Figure 9 is translated in the explanation as being the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. So there's a connection between the crocodile and Pharaoh, according to Joseph Smith's translation of facsimile 1 in the book of Abraham. Now, we've talked about that before in other podcasts, and we've concluded that, well, maybe it's a hit, but it's not really that great a hit. Here's an incredible hit. The hit is not between Joseph Smith identifying the crocodile as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh and the old world. The hit is between Joseph Smith identifying the crocodile as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh and the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Because in Exodus 1, verse 1, in the Adam Clark Bible commentary, Adam Clark makes that connection explicit. And here's what he writes there. It may be necessary to observe that all the Egyptian kings, whatever their own name was, took the surname of Pharaoh when they came to the throne, a name which, in its general acceptation, signified the same as king or monarch. But, and here's where we get to it, pay attention now if you're not already, but in its literal meaning, i.e. the word Pharaoh, in its literal meaning, as Bochart, or as Bocart, another scholar, B-O-C-H-A-R-T, as Bocart has amply proved the literal meaning of Pharaoh, it signifies a crocodile, which being a sacred animal among the Egyptians, the word might be added to their kings in order to procure them the greater reverence and respect. So according to the Adam Clark Bible commentary, the word Pharaoh is used as a title, which can mean king or monarch, but in its literal meaning signifies a crocodile. So that's what the Adam Clark Bible commentary says under Exodus 1 verse 1. And here in Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham, he sees the crocodile there in facsimile 1, and he identifies it as the idolatrous god of Pharaoh. So a lot of research has yet to be done, but based upon the research that has been done, it appears that the Adam Clark Bible commentary was Joseph Smith's companion and reference book from the earliest stages of his prophetic career. From his translation of the 116 pages in 1828 to his translation of the Book of Mormon in 1829 to his Joseph Smith translation of the Bible between 1830 and 1833 and even up to and including his translation of the Book of Abraham starting in 1835 and concluding in 1842. Okay, that's it. I've gone on way too long. I find this discussion extremely exciting and I hope that you do too. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.